Hello and welcome back to Between the Cuffs. Today I have the immense privilege of interviewing one of my favorite masochists of all time, somebody whose work really speaks to me from a multifaceted point of view, and as an aspiring super masochist myself, I tend to draw a lot of inspiration from the projects that she undertakes, and I feel very confident that she's going to be bringing a lot to the table today for our discussion and for the project at large. So I don't want to waste any time in the beginning because I know I usually love to run my mouth because I'm so excited. So let's just jump on in today. Hi, it's Carter Monier. This is what my voice actually sounds like. But unfortunately, when I recorded the episode of this podcast, I had my microphone set to 41 hertz instead of 48. So I sound kind of like a tiny two foot high version of myself. Anyway... I just wanted you to know what I sound like for real so that you can enjoy the weirdness of the audio quality <laughs> that I inflicted on Ray in this episode. Thank you. So my name is Carda Monier. Uh, I am a trans woman. I live in Michigan in the United States. I um, do a lot of like professional BDSM stuff. Um, and my day job is working in like more straightforward pornography. I have been involved in kink not that long, um, all things considered. I, I really didn't try anything particularly kinky before maybe the very end of 2019 or um, early 2020. So I'm still uh, relatively new, but I would say that whatever I've made up for or whatever I have in like newness or time lost, I've made up for with uh, precociousness. Other things about me, I I don't know, Ray. Like, um, some I never say no to a podcast interview because I like being on podcasts. So you may have heard my voice before, <laughs> and I used to be a professional cartoonist. I guess there, that's everything about me. Every every single thing about me. <laughs> no, that's that's perfect. That was a great introduction. Thank you so much for kind of helping you. us set the stage. Um, I would love to kind of kick things into gear by asking you about your your journey starting out in kink and then in the sex industry as a whole. I'd love to hear what this has looked like for you over these last few years. Sure. Um, so I guess what is useful to know about me is that my spouse and I um, were together and got married uh, before either of us came out as trans. We were like... Um, I wouldn't say accidentally, but when um, I didn't start like sex work proper until kind of early 2020. Um, so there was a lot that I felt like I had missed out on, you know, like all of a sudden I was desirable to other people as a woman, which was a com completely new experience to me. Um, and I was, I guess, in in early 2019, I would have been 28. In early 2020, I would have been 29 because my birthday's in September. Um, so, you know, I was getting started in in sex work like later than most people do and feeling like I sort of had to find my place in it and also like learn a lot kind of quickly. Um, and at the same time, I was, you know, going through still a lot of like medical transition stuff and along with that came a lot of experiences that I would describe as physically painful. Um, and the more that I had experiences like that, the more I realized that 
I had like a tolerance for an interest in taking pain from other people. And it sort of like fell into place from there. Like my earliest sex work experiences were like much more like straightforward, um, you know, like vanilla, if you want to call it that. But then around the same time, I was sort of dipping my toes into kink for the first time and discovering more and more that I really liked it. And so it only took a little bit of time for my work and my sort of interest in my sex life to, to converge. You had mentioned at the beginning of your answer that you felt like you had to learn or absorb a lot of information really quickly when you were first starting out. And I think that that was a really apt description of what it's like to kind of jump into this crap. I was curious if you had, like, if you could magically travel back in time and, and give that version of you starting out a piece of advice about the journey, what would that have been? I think, I mean... I think this is going to be kind of like predictable, but honestly, like focusing on the things that actually interest me and not comparing myself to um, more mainstream people or especially cis people, um, porn, and I mean, sex work in general, but especially porn is a, is a weird industry because like, no matter what age you are, your coworkers, um, are going to be like 18, you know, like 18 through 22, uh, a lot of them. And so like something I had to very quickly learn was not to directly compare myself with, you know, like the most beautiful tiny 18 year olds in the world, because like, I am clearly like not that. Um, and like, I'm not competing against that. Like I'm not competing for that audience. And I guess I wish like, the extension and thinking that I had followed initially and, and sort of had to learn the hard way was that I'm also not comparable to like a cis porn girl who is my age, um, who might be able to work for like more mainstream studios or like uh, collaborate with more mainstream talent more easily, um, sort of by virtue of being like a tattooed trans woman masochist. <laughs> Uh, I had worked myself into like a niche, which isn't a bad one, but, uh, I think that really like focusing on the things that interest me most and not desperately wishing I could be one of those people who makes, you know, a hundred thousand dollars a month from just showing their feet or whatever, <laughs> like knowing that that wasn't achievable and like not to torture myself by comparing myself to those people, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that that's a very great response. I mean, that's definitely something that is a struggling point for a lot of people. I mean, even myself, like when I was getting back in after gender transitioning, the first thing I was doing was looking at all the people who have already come out on the other side and, and trying to break that barrier and realize that like you're not supposed to be in that position because you're not them, you know, uh, can be challenging. So I really love that. Through a lot of the work that you post, whether it's your videos or just like from photo sets, I see you using Polaroids frequently as a medium of expression. And I'm a pretty like frequent Polaroid photographer myself, definitely have a little collection going here. I wanted to ask if there is a particular significance that Polaroids hold for you 
when capturing yourself either in a gender perspective or a kink perspective? I think the answer is is maybe more just practical. Like Polaroids are like one of a kind objects. When you take a Polaroid or a you know instant photo image in stacks or whatever, that film was present in the room with you when you were doing whatever you're photographing. So it has like this kind of sense of like having borne witness that like a digital image might not. It's also very convenient because you don't need to take it to be developed. Um, there's not like a, you know, an extra charge uh, or like another person who's going to look at it before you can see it. So there's that like convenience aspect also. Um, and generally speaking, they also have like a little bit of a smoothing effect. Like I really like the way that Polaroids especially um, are not like the sharpest, most perfect film in the world. Like there's a lot of little imperfections and a lot of kind of like uh, Vaseline on the camera lens effect uh, that just makes everything seem kind of elevated or um, otherworldly. So all of those things together make me really like Polaroid. Um, I think the first time I was exposed to it, like post-transition was I had like a really incredible weekend date with a girl I'm dating. Um, and she had maybe an Instax camera or something and took a few pictures of me. And I also took a couple pictures of her with it. And I just loved how they looked. Like as someone who can be very self-conscious about how my body looks, there was something about the quality of the images that both seemed like timeless and also very beautiful. Um, and really like, seemed like they captured a type of desire in the gaze. Uh, I don't know. I think it's the softness of them. So um, from there, I like became very interested in like getting a couple cameras of my own and like researching the types of film and like learning how to use them. I guess the other appeal for me too is like, I have never been trained as a photographer. I don't know what an F-stop is really. <laughs> you know, I, I don't have a light meter. Um, I don't really understand like focal distances beyond like the most obvious like surface level understanding. So Polaroid is great because Polaroid cameras for the most part um, were designed for the layperson as like super basic, like you get what you see um, point and shoot cameras. And so that works out great for me because then I can also ask other people to take pictures of me without having to explain like, a dozen things about this complicated camera. It's just, there's a button, you know, like look through the thing, press the button, we'll have a picture. Um, so all of those reasons make it feel like a very like immediate and beautiful and kind of, um, I don't know, kind of significant camera format where you, you get this product out immediately that, that feels more um, romantic or more, physically real than like a digital image will that was yeah. a very long-winded answer no i i loved every second of it and i love that one of the sentiments you shared was the fact that the film was like a tangible part of the experience of whatever you captured you know having this proximity to the activity itself i think that's really cool i think that's why i like film so much is because it just it feels so close to what i'm doing and 
yeah, it's a point and shoot and you're only capturing a split second. You like aside from like a filter lens or or some of these other tricks nowadays, you can't really like alter these too much comparative to like 35 millimeter or digital shooting. So that was really interesting mm -hmm. to to hear you say. I I had made a point about gender too in the question that that spawned another question. I was curious um how would you describe if there is one, the intersection of your gender identity within your, your sex work career or your kink presentation? Um, I would say very straightforwardly that I wouldn't be doing this if I hadn't come out. Like, mm, yeah, I felt so uncomfortable in my body. And um, like prior to transition, I didn't want partners to like particularly touch my body beyond, you know, I don't know, like just touching my dick, like it made me feel, I didn't know the word dysphoric at the time, but it made me dysphoric for people to touch my nipples. It made me dysphoric for people to touch my asshole because like I had this idea that they were so disgusting and that there was just something repulsive about, about my body. Um, and like taking pictures of myself was not something I really did, you know, like I, I didn't start taking selfies at all until after I transitioned. Um, so I, I don't think, you know, like if I was suddenly thrown back to when I was 18, um, knowing now what I know, my first thing that I would do would be to transition, um, before engaging in any kind of sex work, I think, because like, um, it was just so important for me to feel like I was embodying like the the correct gender presentation, like the, the womanhood that I aspired to. Um, and I'm not high femme or anything like for listeners who are, who are listening, who might not know what I look like. Like I'm not, I'm not like a capital W woman, um, in my gender presentation. Like most of the time I describe myself as like a woman who is a faggot or, a beautiful woman, like sort of as a single unit, like that Richard Scarry illustration of a beautiful screaming lady. Um, that's me. I'm I'm a beautiful woman, but I'm also a faggot, and like I'm also, you know, gender nonconforming in in all of these different ways. But uh, learning to embrace those things has let me like learn to love my body in a way that I never could before. Um, and sex work, like as you know, well, Ray is like an ego annihilator. Like you see your body from all of these different angles, doing all of these things that you would never normally see. It's like hearing your voice recorded and played back to you, but like way worse. And so you need to have like a modicum of comfort with your body in order to, you know, like the work. Otherwise you can't bear to see yourself. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say that like transition was an essential part of me being able to do these other things with my body, because prior to that, I was very alienated from my body as a whole. It sounds equally like essential, but also emboldened by you continuing this work, if I'm not mistaken, just in hearing you kind of represent yourself. And I, I really love that for you. You know, I, I know it's really important to enjoy just who and where you're at in your own skin because it can be really hard being fucking trans is a beautiful challenge um and so thank you for 
you know, being vulnerable and, and sharing that here, that, that really means a lot. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah. I, I think that when I think of you as like an individual within the industry, the first thing that comes to mind is masochism. And the second is like gender representation. Cause I've seen very colloquially that like you've done a lot for trans people in the community, but I, as a masochist definitely focus on your painful proclivities um, just off the bat. And I would love to shift focus onto the masochism in your life and in your career. Um, and I think I want to start that to see if I could have you define what masochism means to you personally, not necessarily like a dictionary definition, like this is what Oxford says, but like, what does it mean to you? That's a great question. I feel like for me personally, masochism means choosing pain um, as opposed to simply enduring it. Um, and it also means giving pain like giving my experience of pain to another person. Um, masochism obviously can happen, like, you know, in solo play. Um, but what makes masochism most interesting to me is when I am explicitly choosing and then also giving my pain to a top, to somebody else who I care about and like, using that pain that I'm going through as a way of expressing the care that I have for that person. Yeah. Does does energy ever come to mind when you're engaging in masochistic activities, regardless of in which position? I'm, I'm curious. When you say energy, what do you mean? Uh, energy as, as far as like the intangible, like an energetic exchange, you know, you're defining masochism for you as something that you're doing as an activity with others. Um, and mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you focus at all on the energy exchange in that activity, you know, especially as you like get into blood play where like your literal life goo is just kind of all over the place. Uh, sure. Just a point of curiosity. Yeah, I I don't generally think of it that way, like like as energy so much as I do like as I think the word I would probably use would be like sacrifice or mm. like an emotional exchange. Um but yeah, it, it's the same thing and like regardless of whether I am topping or bottoming, that is incredibly significant to me. Like um I've been cut a bunch of times and like shed blood for people I love. And I've also cut and drawn blood from people I love. And in both cases, it does feel like there's something very powerful happening between us. And if you want to call that like an, you know, uh, a transfer of energy, um, that wouldn't be inaccurate. It's just not like necessarily the language I would, I would jump to for it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I tend to be very energetically focused. So I know that not everyone is, but I, I was just curious. And I wanted to hear your perspective on that. When you were kind of, you know, because you said you started dipping your toes in a kink and then you really like started making up for lost time, so to speak, about when in your kink journey or your sex industry journey, did you start to like really get into the deep end of the pool, so to speak, with your masochistic practice? I think the first thing that I did on camera, let me, I'm going to, I'm going to be, um, like a real professional and look on my many vids <laughs> um, and see, because I 
think the first um, like on-camera masochism I did was with um, Mistress Savannah in Los Angeles. Um, and I actually don't know if Mistress Savannah is still working, but um, she's this intensely beautiful trans woman uh, pro-dom. And um, she uh, like flogged and like hit me with like a, a crop and um, her hands and, and some other stuff. And at that point I had already taken like quite a lot of pain in my personal life. Um, I had been whipped to the point of bleeding. I had, I don't know, just done a bunch of intense stuff, you know? Um, the kind of stuff you do with a partner who is a top, who you see a lot of. Um, so I was like very confident coming into that scene that like I would be able to hold my own. Um, and I think that video turned out really well and also led to a lot of like subsequent opportunities because it indicated to other people that like I was not just, I don't know, someone who used my dick on camera you know, or like, or whatever, but like also someone who could um, take pain. And this is less important, but for the purpose of video, take pain and look pretty while taking pain. Um, so I think that that was like the first like big step for me in that direction. And it's a very simple video. It's like a camera on a tripod. Like I was secured to um, like a big metal object like object dart. And it, it it just, I think, opened people's eyes to the fact that like, I was serious when I said that I liked pain. And from there, like various other opportunities um, came out of it. That's awesome. You've definitely like been making leaps and bounds with, with your masochism. And it's been really cool to get to watch and like admire the work. I was wondering if you Thank had a you. scene like just off the top of your head that you found to be more challenging or the most challenging in any aspect like it could be physically or mentally or emotionally but I wondered if there was one that stuck out to you in that that manner um the one that comes to mind immediately is a scene that I did with testimony in Chicago um so testimony is at an absolutely incredible uh pro -dom. as way of background information um this scene was based on an experience I had as, I don't know, like a 16-ish year old of growing my hair out really long under the excuse that I was growing it to donate it to Locks of Love, um, which was like the go-to excuse for like a teen quote-unquote boy to grow his hair, you know, like, oh, I'm not gay. <laughs> I'm donating it. Um, so when it came time to cut it, my parents were the ones who cut it. And um, the way that they did it was to first shave one entire side of my head and then the other. And uh, they took pictures as they were going. And I remember just looking at those pictures and feeling like this image of me with the side of my head shaved, I was like completely broken down. Like, you know, a disgusting, unfeminine, like ugly creature. And, and I felt so much self-hatred towards myself 
in that image um, that like carried through for like decades, right? Um, I'm I'm in in my thirties now, so uh, the idea for the scene was that I asked testimony to shave the right side of my head. My hair was quite long, like shoulder length. Uh, so testimony shaved the right side of my head and then put big fucking needles through my scalp and then drew them out. And I just bled everywhere um, and sobbed. And then testimony um, fucked me with my own blood as lube and also sh shoved uh, the hair that he had shaved off my head into my mouth, which was a, a really hateful texture. And that's like, I think maybe the most intense scene that uh, I've done on camera, like the most powerful or, or intense scene that I've done on camera. I've done a lot that I'm really proud of, but like that one, I think I I stood to lose the most in that one, you know, like my hair and my looks are like very important to me as a trans person and um being willing to sacrifice them i was very specifically thinking about um yoko ono in cut piece where her clothes are cut off one cut at a time by members from the audience and for that performance she wore her best clothes like she explicitly was wearing her nicest clothes and I tried to approach it with that attitude of like, I am, I'm not like having testimony shave, like only a little bit of my head or like a, a part that would look like really good or sexy or whatever. It's going to be like the entire right side of my head. And it's my nice long hair because it's the best thing I have to offer. So yeah, um, that scene is still, I'm finally just paying to have a friend edit it because I have been dragging my heels on editing it because it's so emotional. But I'm really excited for people to see more of it because currently the only thing that I've been able to share have been like a couple, you know, uh, photos. So I'm excited to be able to like put that out. But it was also just such a substantial and significant personal experience that I'm really, really glad I was able to do. It definitely sounds like it. And I love that it seems so multifaceted for you, you know, um, internally and externally it sounds intense in in a good way very cathartic and i love that you shared that thank you so much because like yeah i think i have only seen a couple images and like a very short clip from this scene in particular and so it's really lovely to hear a little more you know as a human here about that scene and its context to you i think that that's really neat thank you yeah i i've been Watching you post a lot of needle play, I feel like over the last year specifically, and I'm a very avid like sharp switch myself. And so it's always mm -hmm. something that I really enjoy. And I was curious as to what drew you into needles as a form of play and as a form of masochism. Honestly, with needles, I think it's that I started to know people who were needle tops, you know, who who were excited about needles. Because like, I think like most people, I didn't come to needles being like, oh, I love getting my blood drawn or I love getting shots or whatever. Like I have, I would say a pretty like um, average person's fear of needles, but knowing tops who enjoy using needles and 
seeing the pleasure that they get out of pushing needles through me is what like initially drew me to it. Um, this feeling that, that was like, oh, like there's something here that like I haven't experienced and it clearly makes this person so excited and happy. And I, I want to share in that, you know, I want to explore that. Um, so I think, I think that's what drew me to it initially. And then, um, realizing that like I could endure it, um, depending on the top and depending on their technique or the scene, like it's easier or harder for me. Mistress Odette has like a relatively light hand when it comes to needles and doesn't um, emphasize making them painful. Whereas Sir Testimony really digs the needles in, like they feel more intense going in and coming out. So I could take fewer needles from Sir Testimony than I could from Odette, I think is what I'm saying. Uh, it really depends on the on the person and the context, but like I, I think they're just so beautiful and I love how they look. I love the way that they can kind of distort my face and skin and the ways that they work in conjunction with like piercing and also medical stapling, which is something I really love. So, so yeah, that again, long-winded uh, response, but that's, that's my needle, needle fixations. <laughs> yeah, no, that was great. You, you spurned another question in my head because I've, I've heard you mention a few practitioners and just people you've engaged with at a, at a kink level and a masochistic level. And I wanted to know if you just had sadists that you've really enjoyed getting to work and play with, um, whether you've mentioned them here or not, just like an opportunity to kind of shine a light on them or anyone along this line that you'd like to mention just for people's awareness who are listening. Absolutely. Um, well, I think a person that you and I both love is Owen Stone. Yeah. Um, who uh, is a brilliant sadistic top and one of the first tops to make me just like totally break down um, and and really, really scare me um, and also like really change my relationship to some kinds of pain. Um, another is uh, Sir Testimony in Chicago, uh, just a brilliant sadistic blood and needle top mistress odette out in uh, austin texas like genius medfet like the the emperor of medfet um complete mad scientist like so twisted and fun and funny i always laugh a lot when Mistress Odette is hurting me, which is like a weird thing, but like, it, it's it's so much fun. <laughs> it's really fun. Petra Hunter, also, um, who is also in Texas. I've only worked with uh, Petra Hunter, like along with, uh, like when I'm also seeing uh, Mistress Odette, but just a, a really, really good sadist. Um, really mean. Mistress Petra Hunter is the one who put uh needles through the webs of my fingers and toes oh yeah um, during a that. scene that was really neat um yeah and then um mistresses trinity and roxanne waters in new york city are both just fantastic and fun and funny sadists who i have like a completely lovely time 
um, working with and really look forward to working with again. Um, I'm just about to release a scene with them um, that is genuinely one of my favorite things that um, I've ever been involved in where they, um, as part of it, they, they did like the genital stapling to turn like my, my flaccid dick into a pussy and then fingered the sort of tunnel that they created. Um, and it's just like so visceral and, and awful and beautiful. So that's, that's who I would list. Fuck. Yeah. Thank you for taking a second to shine a light on people who you really enjoyed working with. I, always love to ask people who are like in the industry that question because it's really neat because I, I don't think I've seen a lot of overlap, which is crazy. And I think that's really neat getting to interview so many people from just so many different backgrounds and, and you know, hearing themselves through who they play with. I think that's really neat. So towards the beginning of the episode, I had asked you to define what masochism meant to you with a personal definition. And I'd love to hear another one along those lines, which is what you think the most challenging aspect of masochism is personally, not like, again, as a general concept, but for you as an individual. I think personally, it's balancing masochism and self-annihilation. Um, meaning like masochism is already like, you know, in, let's say in dialogue with, or, um, in the same sort of wheelhouse as more traditional self-harm. And I do view them as separate things, but there are points where they can kind of blur into one another. And finding ways to push my masochism and accept pain that I'm excited about without turning it into just a way of self-harming is I think a very important like distinction and like always sort of the battle that I'm engaged in. Um, I think like a really clear sort of silly example is um, I have a panini press uh, with my spouse and I. We're we're very, we're in a very serious long term relationship, so we have a panini press, and um, every time I see it. I have this intrusive thought about putting my breast in the panini press while it's on and closing it. And I mentioned this to my spouse who, who doesn't do any kind of kink. And they said, ah, maybe you could do that as part of a scene. <laughs> and I said, no, I can't do that as part of a scene. <laughs> like, I can't, um, I can't panini press my breast and get like third degree burns as part of a scene. Like that's not, that's not safe. Um, that would just be self-harm. <laughs> I think it's important to be able to identify like what ideas I have or like what impulses I have fall more on the panini press my tit side and more on the like, you know, at least risk aware kink side where, where I'm like doing something intense that's not going to like irreparably damage my body or, um, I don't know, like not impulsively doing something that could potentially irreparably damage my body, if that makes sense. And yeah. I think it's a struggle that like all masochists deal with to some extent, because like we all have intrusive thoughts or I have to imagine we do. And, you know, I was just telling um, one of my partners last night, like 
I have like a recurring fantasy of recreating the opening of Unchan and Delu, but like with my actual eye where someone cuts my eye with a razor blade. And obviously that's a bad idea. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like that, that's not good masochism. That's just, that's just cutting your eye. Um, but like, I don't know. When you do this stuff professionally, those ideas start to feel more realistic or achievable sometimes. And like, I think it's just really important to like self-examine and um, really ask myself, like, what, what am I asking of my body? Is this realistic? Is this something I can recover from? Um, is this a sacrifice that I want to make right now? You know, maybe in the future, there will be a circumstance where like, <laughs> I don't know, where Panini pressing my breast would make perfect sense as part of a grand performance before my execution or something. Like, I don't know. Um, but like that, this is not the time. And for me to do it now would be reckless and irresponsible ultimately. So, um, yeah, I think, I think that that's what I'm like struggling with or second guessing the most is like whether or not like the masochistic impulses I feel and follow are coming from like desire and love and horniness or coming from self-annihilation. That's definitely a great point that you made. And I feel like that's a great point of contention that is made against masochists a lot whether by people in or outside of the community, it's like the bordering on self-harm and the intersection with self-harm, very big distinction. And so I'm really happy actually that that was what came to your your mind when I asked you that. I'm glad, thank you. Yeah, of course. Another like curiosity-based question I had because we've talked about some really like just cool, extravagant, challenging scenes together so far and I, I wanted to know if you had any scene ideas in your head that you have you would like to bring to life you know maybe another one besides the panini press <laughs> yeah the panini press isn't really a, that would be such a bad scene yeah I don't know like that that would just be you know it's like you can get someone to tap out really fast and there's not much nuance in it you know and like the panini press is just one of those things where it's like okay it's kind of one and done <laughs> like um I don't know. You just did a scene with uh, 172 needles, I think is what you said. Yeah, yeah, I did. I've never done a scene with that many needles. I would love to do like a, a big needle scene. Um, I also know some people who have used um, like veterinary needles for horses and they're like just giant, like way too big, bigger than zero gauge needles. Um, and like those absolutely terrify me but i would also love to try something with them i've only barely scratched the surface of rope um it's something i avoided for a long time because of a disability and you and i actually have some shared experience with hypermobility but i thought that rope would you know pull my joints out of place kind of necessarily um and then I was fortunate enough to bottom during a rope workshop for just an incredible, incredible um, expert, uh, like Shibari expert, uh, Mistress Chiaki, 
uh, and I bottomed.der Mistress Odette for this workshop. And uh, Mistress Chiaki specifically showed us how to um, put my body into extension and then tie very tight so that like there was absolutely nowhere for my joints to go. Um, even if I was being suspended or even if I was being um, like put into tension. And that was like remarkably comfortable and sustainable for me. So I would love to do more with rope and I would, I would love to do, I don't know, more uh, like long-term bondage. Like um, I really love mummification. I really love um, scenes that take a long time or where there's like a building of pain. So like needles are great for that. Mummification and rope are great for that. I've never had a catheter put in remarkably enough. So like, I would love to do something with catheterization. I'm sure that next time I see Mr. Sodet, we can do that. I don't know. In terms of like more extravagant scene ideas, I always have like things in the back of my head, but like genuinely I've gotten like some of the most pleasure out of incredibly simple scenes. Like, um, I asked one of my partners to slap me in the face a hundred times. And by the end of it, like my nose and mouth were bleeding and I was completely disoriented and sobbing. And like that by itself was like such an incredible scene for me. And it, it was as simple as you could possibly get, you know? Um, so I, I don't really have like big grandiose ideas specifically right now. Um, more, just a lot of little things that I want to explore and sort of deepen my understanding of. But that that's great though. Like not, like you said, not everything has to be grandiose and extravagant. It can be simple or just like exploratory things. That's really great. Um, and I love that you brought up rope too, as somebody with like joint instability. Cause I, I stayed away from rope suspension for a really long time. Cause I was just like, my, my shoulders are going to rip out of my body. <laughs> like I was so right, scared. Yes, literally. Yes. That experience. And then I get up in the air and I discover that in the right positions, I, I'm actually very secure, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I love that you just had like a really awesome rope experience and that you feel comfortable to explore it again. And I'm also really happy that you mentioned the point of like hypermobility to begin with, because I was actually about to transition there. Something that the two of you, I mean, the two of us have talked about together and that we as independents have talked about in various ways online is EDS or HEDS and, you know, how it affects our mm -hmm. bodies and just all that fun stuff. I know that you were just like on bed rest for a while because you had a bunch of herniated discs and that must have been really rough. I just re-herniated the disc that I had surgery on in May due to the EDS. So I'm having a great uh. time at home right now. So it definitely like was on my mind coming into this this interview. And I would love to ask if you could just describe how EDS and being hypermobile affects your masochism. Because I find that a lot of people with disabilities and chronic pain tend to say that they play into each other. And I, I wanted to kind of pick your brain about that for a second. That's definitely the case for me. And I mean, um, I think that 
you know, for people with disabilities or long-term conditions more broadly, it's it's fairly common for masochism to appear as like a mode of sexual expression. Like we all love Bob Flanagan. And for me personally, like dealing with chronic pain, dealing with chronic injury and the feeling that like my body is more fragile or like more easily injured than other bodies makes it so that when I'm actively choosing pain, it feels like I'm like reclaiming power over something that like normally is just sort of inflicted non-consensually on me by my body. Like I sprain my wrists very easily. And when I used to work hourly jobs, I would sprain my wrists nearly every day, or I guess re-sprain them. I had to wear braces constantly, even on my fingers sometimes. And um, it was just excruciating. You know, I could barely button my own pants or, you know, put on a seatbelt. Since transitioning to doing like work from home and, and then later sex work, I've avoided that kind of like chronic injury and re-injury because I'm not like just picking things up and putting them down for work over and over again, the way I used to be. But I still have a lot of fragility in my body. And so I think masochism serves like a twofold purpose. One is it lets me um, control the pain that I'm feeling and feel like I'm taking pain for a specific purpose, as opposed to like the completely random or like without reason pain that I'm frequently made to endure. And it also lets me assert my own strength and independence from my disability by inviting pain um, that even able-bodied people might shy away from um, or be scared of. Like uh, when you have a disability, um, people can really walk on eggshells around you. And sometimes people will tell you um, that you're not able to do things that you want to do. You know, you'll ask for something and you'll be told like, I'm not going to do that because um, you'll get hurt. And like, you're, you know, you're not being careful enough with your own body. And so masochism choosing pain and receiving pain from a, you know, a trusted top is a way of defying that kind of pigeonholing. Um, you're able to show control and power and like deliberate, um, intention over your body, um, to yourself and to others, instead of just being you know, like a poor, fragile person who really doesn't know what's best for them or whatever. Um, it's very important to me. Like I'm, I'm very lucky currently to have a long-term sexual partner, um, who is willing to both taught me and hurt me in ways that I ask for without just telling me that they're not willing to, because they think I'll get hurt too badly, which is something that I used to experience over and over again from various different tops. Um, and I think that that aspect of like masochism intersecting with disability is really important because it's not just about like relating to the pain that I feel involuntarily. It is very specifically about asserting my own strength and ability to endure straightforwardly difficult things. And feeling like 
my own body is something that can be relied on um, and can be, you know, shown off as a point of pride. That was all really wonderful. And I really appreciated all the many sentiments and just truths that you slipped in there. It can be really frustrating to be disabled and have people approach you in the ways that they do, like you mentioned. And I, I really love just everything that you just said. So thank you so much for sharing that. I think that that's going to be really lovely for a lot of fucking people to hear. Before I, I move off the note of like disability and hypermobility and all that stuff, I know that you and I separately have talked about like some aids and braces and, and stuff like that that have been helpful for you. And I wanted to mm -hmm. take this time and formally with an audience now ask if you had any advice for players who are hypermobile, um, you know, any assistive things or just ad adaptations to their practice that could potentially be of help that you, you know, could share. Um, I think the best advice I can give is to um, know your body and to take pain deliberately, um, but also be very willing to adjust or stop a scene where your body is being like endangered or um, I'm trying to think taking pain in like an, uh, an unintentional way. For example, I can't put weight on my wrists for very long. Um, if I do, they will very quickly sprain. So if I'm doing like, let's say an impact scene, I can take a lot of impact, but if my top has me on all fours and I'm supporting my weight on my wrists, then that is going to hurt me in like an unintended way it will sprain my wrists, which is not part of the scene and not what my top is after. So getting good at advocating for myself and saying like, would it be all right if I were resting my weight on my forearms, for example, um, so that my wrists are not um, bearing weight like that. Um, I very frequently will ask tops, you know, I'll have tops who are like beating the shit out of me, but I'll have to ask, you know, like, oh, um, can you not like put your whole weight on my ribs, for example, because um, my ribs will shift out of place. So, you know, you can, you can beat the hell out of me, but like, don't, don't like push my ribs too hard. Just being willing to make adjustments like that is I think one of the, the most important things. Um, the times when I have gotten unintentionally hurt like it's very frustrating right you don't want that it's going to happen but like you don't want it um and so i've gotten better i think at, at identifying um just things that my body isn't super comfortable doing like i now i don't design any scenes around me standing for a long duration just because i know that that on its own is something that is very hard for me and not in a kink way just in a like i might pass out <laughs> way so, so really prioritizing like the comfort of the parts of my body that are not intentionally taking pain so that I can focus on the pain that I'm meant to be taking and not monitoring or, you know, taking secondary pain that like is unintended. That's, that's great. Thank you for 
speaking that here. I, I know that that's very helpful for me and I'm sure it'll be very helpful for a slew of other people. I feel that sometimes I run out of resources <laughs> and I'm in just like this liminal period where I'm looking for more like help or other ideas and how to make things better for me. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. We're sort of closing out our time here together in the interview. And so I'd love to wrap things up by asking you something that I ask everyone who guests with me. Uh, it's been really neat getting to ask such a wide variety of people this same question and then track all these answers over time because I don't think anyone has given the same answer ever. And that's been really cool. And so this is kind of a broad question, but you can take it as general or as specific as you'd like to. What is one thing that you think we can improve on within the BDSM community? Hmm. Okay, I guess I have two answers to this. Um, one is, it's been useful for me to let go of the concept of BDSM community, because I don't think liking BDSM is a cohesive enough identity to build a community around. And the reason I say that is that liking BDSM broadly um, as sort of like the, the metric for belonging to community necessarily means that I'm going to be in community with like cishet people who are in weird, like um, misogynistic patriarchal relationships who use terms like master slave, who are, you know, who have white dreads, who are appropriative, people who dress in Nazi uniforms, people who, um, I don't know, like I just, I have nothing in common with. Um, and, uh, like every time that I've tried to engage with like BDSM community as a larger sphere, there ends up being someone with a fucking swastika tattoo. <laughs> um, and like, that's not me exaggerating. That's just like the, the case. Um, so I feel like the community that's like more useful for me to think about is like trans disabled BDSM community or like trans sex work BDSM community. Um, but I think that like most of the people who I care most about being in community with are people with disabilities. Um, and most of those people are trans. So like, I would say like that is like the more insular group um, that I'm interested in, I guess. To answer your question, not in that you know, pedantic way. Um, I think the thing that like any BDSM community, but especially the one that I care most about, which is the disabled trans BDSM community can improve on is COVID protocol. Mm. Um, there are so many events and play parties happening where nobody is testing or masking, even as like a bare minimum. And COVID is like absolutely tearing through the communities of disabled and trans people. Um, it affects trans people at a disproportionately higher rate than cis people for whatever reason. Um, and same with disabled people um, and immunocompromised people. So um, I think that like as as the community that I have like any tie into and care most about, um, I want to see 
more measures in place for taking care of like our communities for the longer term. Um, because ignoring COVID is not doing anybody any favors and it's not going away. Um, and it is only going to continue like hurting um, and killing the people in our communities um, who are the most vulnerable. So it's not like a, a fun answer, <laughs> um, but it is the answer I'm most passionate about right now. Yeah. And it's a very necessary answer. Like COVID is still so real and you're right. It's, it's ripping through people at a exponential rate. And yet we're just choosing to try and see how far on the stove we can push it to the back burner, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So that was a, that was a great answer. And you made a great point about, you know, the semantics of community and what that means holistically. So very thankful for both of those parts that you gave. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, thanks, Ray. Yeah, of course. I, I wanted to ask too, just right before we go, where can people who are interested in you and following along with your life and your work, where can they find you online? Um, I think the broadest answer to that is allmylinks.com slash XXX Carta XXX. I'm at XXX Carta XXX on Twitter. Um, and on Instagram, I'm currently at your girlfriend Carta, all one word. Um, but yeah, that all my links is is probably the best way to go because the social media platforms die or whatever, I'll be I'll be updating it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I definitely love to, you know, highlight the awesome people that I get to ask and and show off who they are and showcase their work. So thank you for letting me kind of plug you in to anyone who's listening here. And thank you again for donating your time and being part of this project. You offered a lot of really awesome insight and I'm really excited to share this interview with the universe. So thank you very much, Carta. Thank you so much, Ray. I really appreciate it. And like, I didn't say this earlier in the interview, but I really love your work and like admire you as a masochist. And I'm, I'm excited to hear your voice for the first time and connect with you. And, um, you know, I'm excited to see where things go from here. Oh, well, thank you very much. That means a lot.